0: Uh, I've never preached through Micah, as best I can understand. Now, it's not required to preach through every book of the Bible in order to preach the whole counsel of God. Uh, The whole counsel of God is not Genesis through to Revelation. The whole counsel of God is repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase comes out of Acts 20, where Paul is describing his ministry to the elders in Ephesus, Uh, He's at Miletus when he's doing it. And there's a series of synonyms as to what he means about his own ministry. And the whole counsel of God is one of those synonyms. But what he does is preach Christ, um, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can preach, therefore, the whole Bible and not preach the counsel of God at all. Uh, that's very bad preaching of course and and terrible exegesis because if you preached it faithfully and exegetically then you would wind up with repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so you would preach the whole counsel of God but you could preach the whole counsel of God from any part of the Bible you don't have to preach it from the lot. So why do I want to preach on Micah? Well just because I don't like the fact that I've preached on all the minor prophets but poor Micah, I don't know why I've left Micah out, I mean it's I've got nothing against Micah. But reading the Bible with Helen at breakfast time, we we read together the Bible, and we have a random system of reading. What do we want to read now? And I thought, oh, why don't we read Micah? And then as I'm reading it through, I'm thinking, oh, I really have never studied Micah. Because most of my study has come from my preaching. And so here was a book of the Bible that I knew very little about. And so I thought, well, it's time to actually fix up my failing in not preaching on Micah. There's lots of other bits of the Bible that I also have not preached, but he's the only minor prophet that I've never worked on. So I thought, okay, I'll make six talks on Micah over the next six uh, weeks or so, and uh, uh, the only place in which I can think satisfactorily to do that is with you which is, for those who are listening, uh, a group of students at Moore College who are with me here. And we're going to work through Micah. Verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Boresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let's first pick up the history, so because that's obviously where you're supposed to pick up. They're all the kings of Judah. Jotham was about 740 BC and lived, uh, reigned until about 730, uh, 720, 731. Dating is a little tricky with these people. Uh, Ahaz was from 730 to 716, Hezekiah from 715 through to 686. Jotham was a good guy, Ahaz was a bad guy, Hezekiah was a very confused guy. There's some really good things, a great hero with very bad feet. So, that's the period that you're in. But when you hear that period, it's the Assyrians that you're dealing with. Um, now, we're not quite as familiar with our Assyrian kings and emperors as we need to be to remember the scriptures. There's Tiglath the Third. He was 744 to 727. So he's the same time as Jotham. He He is the beginning of the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. The idea of turning a a local kingdom into a world empire, that's Assyrian and that's Tiglath. He was the man who did it. He assaulted Israel's coastal plains uh, in 734 and he annexed the northern Israel in 733 and got people to start paying tribute to him. His son, Shalmaneser V, came to power in 726. And because of the refusal to pay the tribute, he came back into Samaria and he besieged the city of Samaria for three years. Sieges are dreadful things because uh, you're just basically starving people uh, into, out, of, out of their towns. And he virtually finished it in 722, but he died at the time. And his son, Sargon II, uh, took over and finish them off. And so around 722, 721, Samaria finally fails and, and is beaten as a, as a town and is destroyed, never to really rise up again. Um, the the s- different kingdoms reign in different methods. The Assyrian method of world empire was to take people from one country and put them into other countries and take people from other countries and put them into that country. And so by that they broke the cultures that could ever rise up against them. Uh, the Samaritans are the consequence of it. They're the people who were left behind in Israel uh, after Sargon had exported thousands of them, intermarried and forced intermarried with the people from elsewhere in the, in the Empire. And so you have that, that strange hanging on of the Samaritans But Samaria is no more. However, after Sargon II, in 704, Sennacherib comes to power. And Sennacherib moves in again, and he's pushing further into Judah. Now, Hezekiah, of course, is the one who meets up with Sennacherib. And by the time Sennacherib had reached Jerusalem, All the towns and villages had been destroyed. The whole countryside was destroyed. The only thing left was Jerusalem under Sennacherib. And because of Hezekiah's repentance, Jerusalem was spared at the last moment. And it's it's the great story of the rescue of God against seemingly impossible odds. You and I have lived under the terrific privilege of Australian life, and have very little concept, uh, especially in this period of Australian life too, of the horrors of being ravaged by an invading army. Uh, indigenous people are still upset about it, hundreds of years later, and with good reason, but other than them, we've never really seen it. But you need to look at photos, videos or whatever of Syria today, or of the Armenians, and there was an Armenian section of the land that was taken and given back the other day by the Turks, given to um, I've forgotten who they gave it to, and you see these Armenians, they burnt their houses, they got all their possessions on their backs, they wouldn't leave anything for the invaders to have as they walked out 30 miles with carts. To have all your villages destroyed. To hear, you know, they've now knocked over Bondi. They're coming to Randwick. Next week they're going to be knocking over Redfern. Then they're coming to Newtown. You just live in terror the whole time as you hear the coming of these terrible things. Um, The Assyrians always wanted tribute, but the, the Israelites didn't want to pay it understandably, because when you pay tribute to Assyria, all you're doing is giving them money to rearm, to come and fight against you. So it's a losing battle to try and accommodate uh, Adolf Hitler. You know, the Second World War would have been a lot quicker if people hadn't tried to to accommodate him. Um, mind you, uh, war would have come a lot faster. Um, and people didn't want war, and that was right. You don't want war. But when when do you contest? And when do you if you wait too long and if you pay tribute to the, the opponents, you're making the war much worse when it does come. And that of course was the problem with Hezekiah, because he went to Lashish and met up with the Assyrians and paid tribute. He stripped the gold off the temple, he took the silver things in the temple and he paid tribute to them, and when they received it back in Assyria, uh, they then marched from Lachish to Jerusalem to to continue to despoil the rest, if they could. The geography of it is, Moresheth is not much of a place we know, we think we know where it is, it's a, a, a mound and a hill, but its location is important, it's southwest of Jerusalem, it's about 35 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem, it's in the the edge of the hills, you see, you have a, from the Mediterranean you have a plain, then you go up to hills which continue to rise up to Jerusalem. This is the edge of the hills. It's, uh, it, it, it's like Springwood. Uh, sorry for those of you who are not locals and don't even know Springwood, but it's like Springwood. You know, you've got the, the plain that runs from Bondi across to the Nepean and the hills climb up. They climb up a lot further up to Katoomba, but Springwood is halfway up from which you can look out over the whole plain. And indeed, all the towns that are mentioned here are little villages 12 to 15 kilometers radius from uh, 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 Morisheth. So this is the, the profit of the country town. On the Philistine side, and therefore always exposed to danger from local fights, of Judah. But he is the prophet in Judah. He's a southerner, uh, is the geography of it. It's a prophecy, because the word of the Lord comes to him in which he sees what's going to happen to both Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, The structure of the book, well I've got to work through it yet properly, but the structure of the book seems to me to be three prophecies. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 1, hear you peoples all of you, Chapter 3, verse 1, hear you heads of Jacob. And over in chapter 6, verse 1, hear what the Lord says. And so it's these three slabs of prophecy that you have. We just look at chapter 1 today, chapter 2 in the next of these little sessions. So what's chapter 1 about? Well, it's about God's judgment. It's it's a pretty harsh opening that uh, comes. Uh, Verses 2-4 to is a very interesting invitation to the world. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it. In other words, it's for us, isn't it? Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains shall melt unto him and the valleys will split open and the wax before fire the waters pour down in a steep place. Wake up everybody, I'm coming. I'm coming in judgment and I'm going to come to the high places. There's an ambiguity in the high places. The tops of mountains is where people did their idolatrous worships. And so by God speaking about, I'm coming to the high places, he's coming to the places of, of idolatrous worship. But then he goes on to talk about the mountains that are well underneath him. So is it just he's coming to the mountains or is he coming to the places of idolatrous worship? I think you're supposed to think both. The beauty of poetry is it's evocative. And the beauty of Micah's poetry that I've looked at so far is that he is, like my favourite, English poet, namely John Donne, he, he takes uh, an image and then squeezes it as much as he can. Uh, a conceit is the technical term for Donne's poetry, if you know anything about Donne's poetry. He takes an idea and he, he, he packs hundreds of ideas into it by using ambiguities. You'll see more of those in a few moments time, hopefully. Why should the nations wake up? Well, because God's going to come and judge. But what's he going to judge and why is he going to judge it? Well, he's going to judge Samaria in verses 6 and 7 and Jerusalem in verses, or Judah in verses 10 to 16. Um, Why is he going to judge them? Well, you're told why in verse 5. It's because of Jacob's sins. And I presume what it's saying in the house of Israel is because of Judah's sins. That is, Jacob, I take it, is the northern kingdom and the house of Israel is the southern kingdom. I can't prove that. Uh, like I say, poetry is evocative. You, you look and you think. But you look something of the parallelisms there. The transgression of Jacob, well, what's that? Well, it's Samaria. And the sins of the house of Israel, uh, it's the high place of Judah. That is, Jerusalem has actually turned into a place of sinfulness rather than holiness. And therefore, because of their sin, verses 6 and 7, he's going to destroy Samaria. And the destruction of Samaria, well, you see the the little phrase there at the end of verse 6, he's going to uncover her foundations. That is, he's going to strip bare her foundations, and he goes on to talk about it in terms of a fee for a prostitute. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I'll pour, pour down her stones into the valley. And I'll uncover her foundations, and all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages will be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the face of a fee of a prostitute, she gathered them. And to the V of a prostitute, they shall return. Prostitution is uh, heavily linked uh, to temple worship. Uh, mercifully, our thinking has so far away from Canaanite religion and fertility religion that it seems to us the most unlikely thing is that that prostitution is connected to church attendance. You know, I mean it can happen but you know we know that's a contradiction but within Canaanite fertility religion it's not a contradiction it's exactly what you would expect Uh, that's that's what you have and you see they've moved to such Canaanite religion of idolatry that God is going to destroy them and strip them bare and they will go off with the prostitutes for the Verses 8 and 9 I find slightly strange because I'm not sure who the I is, whether it's Micah or whether it's God. It sounds like Micah in verse 8, it sounds like God in verse 9. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals in the morning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah, it reaches the gate of my people to Jerusalem. My people could be still... um, Uh, Micah speaking but it could be God I suppose as God speaks through Micah it could be both but the idea here is it's it's a plague really, verse 9 it's it's cancer, it's a plague whichever way you're going to look at it that which has affected Samaria is spreading and its spread is going to reach right up to the gates of Jerusalem and so then he tells of Jerusalem and the judgment that is coming to Jerusalem in verses 10 to 16 where Judah's towns suffer. They're all close by to his hometown but they're all going to be destroyed one after another. But the suffering they receive is poetically fitting. Um, God is punishing people for their sin but the ways in which these different towns fall are a series of puns in the Hebrew. Um, uh, at least, I'm telling you, the commentators say it is. My Hebrew, I haven't checked it out thoroughly to know, but it's the ones I have checked up, and I do know. Yes, the commentators are right. In fact, it's actually in the NIV, in its footnotes. They've got it set out for us here. So, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth, laugh, halfa, Roll uh, yourself in the dust. The word for gath sounds like the word to tell. And afra is the Hebrew word for dust. And you see how he's playing with the words here. That the town that sounds like tell, well, don't tell them. And the town that sounds like dust, well, they're going to roll in the dust. And each of them operates like that. Pass on your way in habits of sapphire, which means pleasant. Uh, in nakedness and shame, you'll go. Uh, the inhabitants of Zainan, which is a word that sounds like come out, do not come out. The lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. Long discussions as to the meaning of Bethesel. From the inheritance of Maroth, which sounds like bitter, wait anxiously for good because bitterness, disaster, has come upon you from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Uh, 13 is a verse that none of the commentaries seem to me to satisfy as to why Lachish is mentioned, but I think it's got to do with Lachish being the place where the Hezekiah made the contract and from Lachish destroyed the temple and its gold fittings. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. And therefore you shall give a parting gifts to Morisheth Gath which means uh, which is a word that's got to do with gifts etc but that his house will be given these things. The house of Akzib uh, uh, which means deception. The house of shall be deceitful things to the king of Israel. And I will again bring a conqueror to you inhabitants of Marishah which sounds like the word for conquest. Conqueror. The glory shall come Adalam. Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair for, children of your, for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. You're going to lose everything, your children included. But there's another way of seeing the kind of thing that is being had, because when it says tell it not in Gath, that's a phrase that comes from somewhere else. That comes from Saul's death that David speaks of when David actually therefore gains sovereignty over the land. And the conquest comes down to Adullam, And Adullam is the name of the cave where David was when, Saul, when he hid from Saul. And so it's unwinding the victory of David across the land is now taking place. Like I say, it's poetry. <laughs> It names, evoke things, makes you think. You can't tie it down. It's not mathematical. But with the knowledge of the land, with the knowledge of the places, with the knowledge of the Bible, it's all redolent with the concept of the judgment of God is coming fittingly upon the nations, upon the towns of Judah. But through it all is just the horror of it. The, The awful sense of it. Uh, I'm watching a video set at the moment of uh, which I don't in- commend to you, I won't even tell you what I'm watching because I don't really want to commend it, um, but uh, of, of Vikings and their warfare with the um, uh, Anglo-Saxons in the uh, 8th, 9th century. and uh, uh, The sense of fear, the sense of horror, the sense of, of anguish that comes As these marauding people with soldiers who will die for their cause, with weapons that you've got nothing to contend to, come to little villages of farmers. They can do whatever they like. They walk into your village. You either die or you do what they say. (laughs) We don't live in this world. But Micah is living at that very time when the first great ancient empire conquered because the Assyrians came before the ba- Babylonians uh, the Persians the Greeks, the Romans, they're going to go through it for many centuries but this was the beginning of it uh, for them okay well what's chapter 1 really saying to us that's just to take us through the chapter what's what's it now saying well I've got four points I want to make for you, one because, and they're complex points there's more than a bit under each one because God the creator of the universe is God, we live in a moral moral in the sense of absolute moral in the sense of retributive we live in a moral world you cannot with God being God do as you choose for God is God and will hold his creatures to account whether we acknowledge him or not And the great crime of humanity that we see explaining God's anger in Romans 1 is that though we know God, we suppress the truth out of our desire for evil. And so God makes himself known to us by creation, all people by creation, yet because of our wickedness we suppress that truth. And when you suppress that truth, what you do is you you can't hold it down into the denial of God's existence. You turn aside to idols and you turn the created order into what you worship instead of the creator who's made it. And so, contrary to our postmodern, inclusivist, multicultural, relativistic tolerance, idolatry is awful. Idolatry is not something to. You know, buy a little Buddha statue and stick it in your garden because it's kind of quaint. Right? They're just, you fail to understand the tyranny that is involved in turning aside from the true and living God to pay attention to objects of your desires or your hopes. We don't see idolatry as people, sorry, our community sees idolatry as people seeking after God. Where the Bible consistently sees idolatry as people running away from God. And so even in Acts 17 when Paul's speaking of their idolatry, he's not saying, oh, well, look, I can see that you are very religious people seeking after God. He's saying, I can see you're very religious people who are running away from God. and You don't know anything about God. In fact, you've even got a statue of the unknown God. Well, I know God. Let me tell you about God. Um, he's sure of this. So because God's the creator, the moral order of the universe is absolute, and God is that absolute, and the judgment that will come upon the world is retributive. And second point is, God gives warning to the nations. Verses 2, 3, 4 is the warning. He is the God of all the nations. Uh, the minor Palestinian ones, you know, the Edomites and the Moabites, they're all doing business with with Assyria. They're all paying tribute. They're all trying to avoid the fight. But God is in control of all of them. So all those nations shut up and listen to God. But not only that, God is also in charge of the Assyrians. He is sending them as well to do his work. And so God hasn't lost control because God's people are now suffering or going to suffer even worse. In fact, God is in control, which is why his people are suffering at the hands of the Assyrians. Indeed, part of what makes God so much God is that he, he, he predicts the outcome of what is going to take place. Isaiah, who lives at much the same time as Micah, Isaiah see, sees that God is God because God knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows what's going to happen in the future because he makes it happen in the future. And so he is unlike the other gods. the idols can't tell you what's going to happen; they don't know, but God knows and furthermore, the warning of the nations is that the judgment of God will be just and be appropriate right? there is it's It's not that God is fickle it's not that God has lost control because he's God, nor that God is changing his mind, doesn't like the Israelites after all, or he's had a bad Saturday, or he got drunk the night before. So the gods of the ancient world were fickle and fancy free. But the God of Israel is punishing his people because of their failure in worshipping him as they should. And if this is how God judges his people, how then will he judge the world? There's the warning. 1 Peter picks up the same warning in 1 Peter chapter 4 1 Peter chapter 4 where it says in verse 17 for it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God and if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner God's judgment starts with his own people But the fact that he judges his own people so justly and severely really should act as a warning for everybody else. Which brings me to the third point. God's salvation and judgment is mediated through Israel. See, they're the kingdom of priests who stand between God and the rest of mankind. They're the mediators between God and the rest of mankind. They're the people... To whom, in Deuteronomy 4, the kingdom of priests is, uh, of course, uh, Exodus 19 verses um, 5-6. But in Deuteronomy 4, the people of God, by keeping God's law in the promised land, will stand out as a beacon for the other nations. And the other nations will learn what justice is, and they will learn who God is when they see the people of God living by God's law in the promised land. But of course, the judgment upon them is also part of God showing what justice is. And so, salvation was supposed to be seen through the people of Israel, but now the judgment of God is going to be seen through the people of Israel. And so, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the judgment of the world commences. That's why, to your great surprise, when you're reading the book of Revelation, you come in chapter 4, the great image of God in creation. In chapter 5 you come to the Lamb who is open, able, open worthy to open the scroll because the, the seals on the scroll because he has died and has ransomed men from God and then the seals are opened and what happens? The judgment of God happens. The four horses of the apocalypse. Disasters, plague, warfare. The world, one third of the world is wiped out. And because the resurrection is the beginning of the judgment of the world. And more than that, as you move on, he then moves on to the trumpets uh, in chapters 6 and 7. Uh, chapters, Sorry, the, the seals are in chapters 6 and 7, the trumpets in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11. And the trumpets are the warnings to God, uh, to, from God to the peoples of the world of the judgment that is coming. None of those judgments are complete. They are, you know, one third of the people are wiped out and one third he... but they are warnings to us that God is coming to judge. And so, Micah is telling us this kind of thing, that the fall of Israel, Samaria, and of Judah, right up to the gates of Jerusalem, is the judgment of God, warning the nations of the judgment that will come upon them. And so the nations should shut up and listen. Which brings me to the fourth point, the world we live in because it's to all peoples in all the earth that we're talking about jesus says you'll always have wars you jesus said you'll always have wars and rumors of wars it is the sign of the end of the world but it's not a sign of the timing of the end of the world because there are wars and rumors of wars you know this world must come to an end because there's something wrong with this world but you don't know whether it's going to be next week because there's a war or the month after. It's not. As, most people take these as signs of the timing when that they need to be taking as signs of the judgment, of the reality, of the necessity, of the judgment of the world. And that, of course, is where the pandemic is that we're in. It's the judgment of God. It's the warning of God that things are not right with this world, that we aren't the gods that we think we are. We actually, and we're desperately to be so. You know, we're going to find this vaccine that's going to solve all our problems, so that we can go back and run the world the way that we wanted to run the world. You see, but that's just our continued sinfulness. We don't understand that God is at work, challenging our our autonomy. There's an interesting article I read in the paper last week, uh, by a non-Christian woman. Who didn't realize what she was writing as best i could work out the whole the whole article 600 words or so was really on sin uh, and how sinful we were and how the pandemic was exposing our sinfulness and how stupid we are because we just want to get back to sin rather than take the message of the pandemic but she didn't use the word sin once she used the word control she said What the pandemic is teaching us is that we actually are not in control. Our sense of control is illusory. And all we're trying to do is get back to be in control of my own life. Our friend over at uh, uh, Adderdale, Dominic Steele, who's such a great evangelist, uh, he likes to use the word autonomy for sin. Autonomy is a good word. Auto-self, nomos-law, self-law, self-rule, control. We, we want to control our own lives rather than live under our sovereign Father and heavenly God. And so what judgment does is it challenges our control and tells us of the deception of sin. And so this is God's kindness to warn us by judgment, just as he warned the nations in the time of Micah by the destruction of Samaria and the villages of Judah. Well, we'll see what chapter 2 holds next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection by which he brought us salvation and brought us judgment. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in these times of war around the world, of civil wars and of conflicts in Africa, in the Congo, in Asia, in Syria, and in just so many parts of the world, in the struggles of South America and their revolutions. We pray, Father, with the wars and the rumors of wars, and we pray with the plague that has come upon us in the pandemic, that our people, our nations, our own nation here, would wake up to your sovereign judgment and take your warnings and turn back and seek forgiveness. We look at your ancient people Israel and see the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, knowing with joy the reality of the heavenly temple we come to, but seeing also the hand of judgment, that these who are your chosen people should be so condemned. What chance have the rest of us got, other than through your Lord and Saviour Jesus. And We pray it in his name. Amen.